Josh Swanson Vogel Law Firm. Coming to us from his home office down in the deep, deep basement of his home office, of course, on our Bakken barbecue phone lines here. And Josh Swanson, are you are you in the deep bowels of your basement there? I'm in the uh, Swanee Bison Man Cave. At, at, uh, my, my two bulldogs behind me, they're my new associates, and my uh, six-month-old Maverick. I've been home with him, and, and he's tent right now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm deep in the basement trying to – I got all my papers stacked up, my laptop, my cell, and trying to, you know, do business as best as most of us are, you know, talking – you before the phone call and I, i've talked with a lot of attorneys in the oil and gas industry whether it's from the old Hess or, or wherever this week and everyone's in the same position trying to make the best of it they can and still get some work done well and that's one of the things too is you know um as far as i i know you know even if you could get a court date there's no courts that are really taking cases i know they're doing some emergency cases but right now in terms of um attorneys i would imagine you guys are really busy because of the due diligence and contracts and all kinds of different things that comes comes into the play right now whether it's contract disputes and one of the things i wanted to ask you about and we'll get to that in just a second is this force majeure which i'm seeing a lot of more and more in headlines i'm not seeing it in application but I am seeing it in headlines, um, starting with the NBA is how I'll phrase it. But um, you guys, are imagine, are staying pretty busy, though, just even with the courts not scheduling dates, you guys are still busy. Yeah, and, you know, the, the news of Whiting's Chapter 11, uh, when the, a company takes action like that and files uh, for bankruptcy, there's a lot of other things that are triggered, including an automatic stay and, and a lot of state pending litigation or even litigation in federal court. So we have clients dealing with that. And, and a lot of your listeners, wherever they are, service providers that have done work, you know, whether it's on wells or pipelines, and there's issues that come up, you know, if, if there's accounts receivable and folks are needing to get paid at one point, do they file a lien to make sure they're a secured creditor versus an unsecured creditor? And we've been getting a lot of calls on that from, from our clients and taking action there. And a lot of contract issues, you're right. In fact, the force majeure clause, I was on a, a webinar with Baker Donaldson, a, a big national firm earlier this week. And that's something that's going to come up and it is coming up right now. A lot of your listeners have probably heard, you know, another industry, uh, restaurant and dining the cheesecake factory in, in late late march excuse me sent a letter to all their landlords into malls saying that they're not going to pay rent starting in april because of the covid19 crisis and there are a lot of force majeure issues at play and, and i'm real glad to talk to you legal nerd that i am i actually did a, a law review article for the und uh, law journal back in 2014 called the hand of god limiting the impact of the force majeure clause and an oil and gas lease. So I've, I've looked through that a couple times, and, and you're absolutely right. Those cases have already started to make their way through the court system. So it's something we're keeping an eye on. It's something that our clients are very, very aware of. And if listeners out there have uh, agreements with the force majeure clause, what they ought to do right away if they haven't already is take a look at those because in I know the force majeure language that I draft for clients that's whether it's in an oil and gas contract 
or anything else, we require that the party claiming force majeure sends written notice, whether it's within five days, 10 days, or 14 days to the other party of the contract saying, you know, we're hereby notifying you that we're exercising our rights under section, you know, 1.15 of the contract um, declaring a force majeure event. And if you don't do that, even if there is a force majeure event, it's a creature of contract. And that's what the case law says that force majeure is what the contract says it is. And in some cases, it'll need to be interpreted by the courts. But if your contract says you need to let the other party to the agreement know within 14 days that there's a force majeure event, if you don't do that, whether or not there's a force majeure event doesn't matter because you've breached or fail to exercise that specific requirement in the contract. So it's a, a really, really great topic and, and something that your listeners and, and our clients are very, very aware of or should be aware of. Well, in force majeure, of course, act of God, but it also goes into other areas of pandemic, epidemic, those types of things. So uh, just kind of give a very brief definition of force majeure because one of the reasons of course i'm very attuned to it is because i come from you know the upper midwest where we flood every year so i do see that term every now and then during flooding seasons but it's never been a flood of them on the internet like i've seen with with the current state of affairs yeah and, and i'll read you an example of a, a force majeure clause that, that i typically use uh, or ask for revisions to an oil and gas contract, quote, this lease shall not be terminated nor lessee held liable in damages if compliance with covenants in this lease is prevented or hindered by an act of God of the public entity, adverse field, whether market conditions, labor disputes, inability to obtain materials in the open market or transportation thereof, inability to obtain governmental permits or approvals necessary to lessee's operations, such circumstances of events being hereafter referred to as force majeure. Lessee shall notify lessor in writing within 15 days of the first occurrence of any claimed events defined herein, which prevents or hinders any compliance. Such notice required in order for said events to qualify as force majeure. Okay, layman's terms, what does that mean? If there's an act in the contract beyond a party's control, and that's there's a couple requirements there that, that are in the case law, and folks can, you know, they're welcome to go read my law review article, The Hand of God, Limiting the Impact of the Force Majeure Clause. Uh, shameless self-plug there for that. But, but basically, it's an event that's beyond the party's control that prohibits them from complying with the contract and, and state or federal governmental orders. In the uh, Akuma case from New York that dealt with the moratorium, there on on fracking and horizontal drilling there's been some cases in north dakota on it but there's a couple requirements one is that you can't perform your end of the agreement because of something beyond your control and what is beyond your control is typically by the contract another issue is foreseeability courts have asked and on this same webinar that i was on with these other attorneys earlier in the week one of the key questions we're going to see out of the force majeure clauses with regards to COVID-19, when were the contracts entered? When was performance rendered impossible? And was that foreseeable? So at what point does the foreseeability with the virus become an issue when it starts wreaking all kinds of havoc in Wuhan back in January 
when there's the first reports to our intelligence agencies that have been making the rounds around the papers. So that'll be a factual question for the court, and, and different judges are going to see that differently. So I don't know if litigants will be form shopping a little bit, trying to find the right judge that might be most sympathetic to their clause, because some of the clauses, I, you know, I was looking through a master services agreement for a client this morning, that specifically says that epidemics are covered by force majeure, but the problem there that, that I'm foreseeing for the adverse party on our side is they never exercise written notice. So even if epidemics are covered, and they are by some of them, there are some factual considerations that a party needs to be aware of. And a court is going to say, you know, it might sound a little callous, and there are issues impacting every business right now in the economy, whether it's oil and gas, restaurant, retail, bars, obviously healthcare. But courts are going to defer to what the contract says. And that's what the case law, the one consistency in the force majeure case law is. It's a creature of contract, and the parties can set their rights and obligations vis-a-vis one another by the contract. So even if it seems unfair or inequitable, if the contract dictates what it is, that's what's going to control. So it's a real interesting legal question, and obviously for business purposes, people out there listening need to go take a look at contracts they have right now and see what their contract says about the force majeure clause. Because, you know, we've seen it back in, you know, you mentioned the flooding Back in, you know, around 2011, when Minot just got hammered, you know, letters went out from the Industrial Commission to operators saying, you better burn your well site so there's no overland flooding and contamination, etc. cetera. Um, so it's something that we've seen before with flooding and weather, but not in this context on, on such a wide scale. I did want to ask you about parsing some words obviously this is where you attorneys make your money so you know parsing words and that sort of thing you like that joke had to throw it in there uh, but you know it, this is serious though with the word epidemic and pandemic uh how how much can these terms get parsed i guess um you know get interpreted reinterpreted i guess i'm 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 hope i'm using the word parse correctly but it's uh it seems like that those the term epidemic and pandemic could trigger or get caught up on some things. And that's a really good question, Jason, especially when you take a look at, for example, when did the World Health Organization and CDC declare COVID-19 to be a pandemic? Is that an event that, you know, officially under the contract triggers it because that's when it was declared a pandemic versus before that when it was spreading throughout parts of Asia. So that's a really good question. And that's, that is where lawyers make their money as to when do these events occur. And I, I think, you know, if I'm arguing it, I don't know that I would try to try to tell the court, well, this, this wasn't a pandemic or epidemic, your honor. I might argue the timeline. In fact, that's what I would probably focus on depending on the client and the contract is when did the party have knowledge of the force majeure event being the pandemic? And when was it actually a pandemic or foreseeable so i i think the other end of it that's important too is that if you're a party to a contract with force majeure language to reach out to the other side because there's nothing that says you know typically when when we have a dispute unless there's certain statutory timelines at play we don't go rushing to the courthouse right away to file a lawsuit we reach out to the other party and we try to work through it and say hey look 
I know I can't comply with this contract. This thing is kicking everyone's butt. We know that we got to pay some money. Let's talk about a payment plan or let's talk about an agreement because it's, you know, better to get 50 cents on a dollar right now and then get paid the rest at a later date when this all subsides than for one party to say what we're, you know, we're probably going to see a lot of companies filing for bankruptcy here. So uh, there's different issues at play with that. But but the, the key thing is, you know, one, you can try to work it out with the other side to the agreement. And I think, you know, Cheesecake Factory, they're, they're doing that as an example because they're the, as far as I know, one of the bigger businesses out there that's told landlords, hey, we can't pay right now. So if you're the landlord, you know, what's the alternative? You force Cheesecake Factory into bankruptcy and then who's going to rent the lease space right now at those retail locations? Well, nobody is going to do it. So there's a lot of... You know, you're you're a guy that that understands business, Jason. So there's there's a lot of practical implications too. Where as a lawyer, I would tell my clients, you know, this is how it could play out, and there really are no good solutions and no good answers. And, and that's the the one thing with this COVID nineteen thing. There's really no good example for litigators, for folks in in the media, in politics, and even the law. When a judge has to make this decision. There's really no good example. You know, we've talked about it before. What lawyers do is governed by precedent, by previous cases. Judges look to that when interpreting whether it's a contract, language, um, statutes, rules, regulations, etc. There's really nothing for a judge to go back to or as a litigator to tell them, well, judge, go look at the, you know, uh, uh, Spanish flu influenza that went through in 1919 post-World War One. Well, that was a hundred years ago type of thing, and there's really nothing even remotely close to compare it to. So it'll, from a legal perspective, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, and I think parties out there, the, the time to act is, is right now to protect their interests if, you know, if they're dealing with a force majeure or they can't perform under the terms of an agreement or a contract. I was talking with an attorney down in Houston, Texas, Chris Cottrell, out of uh, Winston-Strom. And uh, he he actually called out the Texas Railroad Commission and said when we when we talked about the pandemic and the uh, epidemic phrasing and the language, he uh, called out and recommended that the Texas Railroad Commission should actually step forward and, and, and get proactive on this and put out a definition or something along those lines. And what I thought of is. Like what Governor Burgum just did in North Dakota, where you declare an emergency declaration. Of course, again, with flooding, this is very common in the state. Is there anything from the government side or maybe Lynn Helms, the director of mineral resources or the Industrial Commission, for them to come out and say, you know, that uh, North Dakota is officially declaring this a pandemic? And the reason we're doing that is so that uh, future court cases can you know d- d- compare it when it comes to that point versus you know do you know what i mean as far as get I, get, get ahead of the verbiage i guess they they absolutely should and, and what might seem counterintuitive to listeners right now operators aren't prohibited from going out and working the well sites from servicing them and from keeping the wells going now from a force majeure perspective that's a problem because there's no governmental guidance order or rule saying their performance is prohibited so they can still perform under the terms of the contracts which might be counterintuitive because to exercise and get the protections of that there's really nothing out there now prohibiting them 
from doing their work. And if I'm on the flip side of it and, and I'm arguing for a mineral owner or somebody in a service contract, that's exactly what I'd say is there's no governmental, there, there's no shelter in place, uh, for example, that's applicable to the oil and gas industry. And I know a lot of folks in the industry, I mean, we, we need oil and gas. I mean, there's obviously too much of a supply right now, which is part of the problem. But there's different issues that come along with shutting wells in, expenses with that, cash flow, etc. But so long as those operators can keep those wells going, performance isn't rendered impossible under a governmental rule, order, or regulation. And what the case law says in, in those sorts of situations, force majeure doesn't apply. I mean, there, there's another concept known as the defense of impossibility where a party could argue, well, okay, force majeure might not apply, but under the common law, there's this implied defense. And if my performance is rendered impossible by an act beyond my control, that's that's an argument. But again, I would argue, well, it's not impossible because you know, company X, Y, and Z, their wells are going, and I can pull up a well and say, well, geez, this one pumped 6,000 barrels last month. So I, I think that the, the state of North Dakota and the Industrial Commission, the attorney you were talking to, I think that thinking is really smart. I think they should try to get ahead of this. If, if I'm a, a oil company, they've got a lot of stuff going on, obviously, right now with the markets and cash flow, getting bills paid, trying to, to remain solvent. I would send a letter out to mineral owners saying this is a tough time for everybody. We ask that you work with us, be patient, that kind of thing. We're doing the best we can to, to fulfill agreements, et cetera. You know, at this time, we're, you know, not canceling any contracts. We don't think we're in breach. But in North Dakota, and I've told other operators this, sometimes just being up front with the mineral owner and not being a, a, a jackass about something and answering the phone call, that solves a lot of problems, and it can stave off a lot of litigation. I think the problem a lot of companies get into, even with the, the mineral owner that might only own, you know, a couple hundred acres or might only own, you know, 50 acres, is that, Companies are non-responsive, and they can't get a response. They can't get a response, and then they feel their only recourse is calling a guy like me. And, you know, we, like I said, we try to work things out. But I, I think it's in the interests of the operators, the mineral owners, and everyone involved a couple things. Nobody likes seeing oil at $20 a barrel. And it's pretty scary. Uh, the same call I was on earlier in the week, I had an attorney there said it wouldn't surprise him if oil went negative, just like natural gas did. Um, that's scary for everybody. Nobody wants that because in addition to mineral owners not getting their checks, it impacts a lot of workers. It impacts a lot of guys that you and I know, and it's not good for the state. It's not good for tax collection. It's not good for revenue. So everybody wants to see this thing get better before it gets worse. And I, I would suspect that I would think, you know, there's some pretty smart folks working at the industrial commission and in their oil and gas division that they would issue some sort of guidance coming up or work with the governor's office to, to do that, to even declare a state of emergency there to, to maybe provide some sort of backstop or firewall that would help out in some of these uh, contractual disputes and disagreements that it's, it's not a question of if they're going to come up. It's, it's a question of, of when they're going to come up. You've been following the Whiting bankruptcy filing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that That's a, so th this is not, you know, this isn't a, a, anything, new, I guess, shocking to a lot of people when when we really take a step back. Uh, a third of the workforce was laid off last July. What was it? $1.2 billion in, in debt was posted around November, public company. And then, of course, the, the recent filing. 
Um, just kind of give me your uh, legal attorney overview of of the Whiting filing, you know, that sort of thing. And I'll start. I'll start by giving a, a lawyer type disclaimer. I'm not a bankruptcy debtor creditor attorney. We do have those at Vogel, and I I work closely with them on on contract cases that involve those kind of issues. Having said that, you know, I, I suppose the good news is it's a Chapter 11, which means they're trying to restructure. They're not liquidating the company, as as far as I know and what I've seen and read. They're going to keep the wells going because they need cash coming in. They they need assets. Um, and, and I think if I'm remembering right, their assets right now exceed their liabilities. And I, and I don't know if it's on a two to one ratio. I, I can't remember what I was reading yesterday about it. So, you know, they need to pay off their creditors and lenders. One of the big issues is talking to attorneys who know a lot more about this than I do, is that the oil and gas game is a real cash intensive business. There's a lot of capital. You know, these wells aren't cheap. They cost many, many millions of dollars. And the, the issue that's coming up that a lot of operators are going to be facing from what it sounds like is, you know, when they, they need to tap into those credit lines or get financing, lenders are going to say, we can't do it right now. And I think that's probably where some of the, the issues coming up or discussions, probably discussions being had right now, I'm sure at oil and gas offices across the country, whether it's big time operators like Whiting or the small independent ones are if we need to get financing or cash, where can we get it? And where can we, you know, a lot of these operators, you know, as well as anybody, Jason, they were trimming their belts and and cutting costs and and trying to be as efficient as possible. And this COVID-19 thing and the the dispute between the Russians and Saudis and OPEC, it could not have come at a worse time. I mean, you, you talk about the worst time for all of this to hit this industry it was right now. So not only are you trying to battle the stuff beyond your control with the Russians and Saudis and them flooding the market. Okay. Now all of a sudden people aren't driving and even airlines, you know, a big source of fuel, they're not flying near as many planes. So you don't have that demand there and things are pumping. And pretty soon, you know, I I know talking to uh, this other attorney in Louisiana, one of their senators, I think Cassidy down there was trying to to push through getting the, the United States to, buy up oil and gas to put it put into the uh, strategic reserve with where price is at right now and a problem that we're going to start seeing pretty quick is they're going to run out of storage space to put it once they pump it and that's that's not good for anybody so with with the whiting situation that the real unfortunate thing about it talking to other folks in the industry is that there might be the first but they're certainly probably not the last and when will this thing get better is a question that nobody can answer. And when folks like you and me are sitting at home, aren't driving, aren't traveling, that puts a, a big ding in demand and summer travel season's coming up. So, you know, I, I hope and pray I really do that for, for the sake of everybody. This thing's, I mean, we all want it to be over sooner rather than later. But the, the real scary thing is, you know, we were talking before the call, this could fundamentally alter the, the economy as we know it and have a real it's, it's not a question of how it's going to impact our lives and market. It's a question of how severe it'll be. And is this a, a one-year thing, a two-year thing? You know, the, the Great Recession back in 2008 with the housing crisis and the financial markets, you know, took a couple of years to bounce back from that. You know, you look at the, the Great Depression, it was really World War II that finally pulled us out of, of the doldrums for that. And those are situations where, again, I, I would really hope our, our leaders in Congress – 
and at the state level are having those discussions now and trying to come up with a plan because if you try to shoestring this thing together and it's at a certain point you just can't keep doing a phase three and a phase four and a phase five where you're doling out trillions and trillions out of time so in, in the short term i think folks are trying the best they can to get through it and, and and whiting you know hopefully they get on more solid footing and they can keep on going but man brother i it's it's a really uncertain and, and frankly scary time for a lot of people no i think your example of probably the great depression is 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 the only realistic comparison that you could probably make with this and even that's not applicable uh this is this is a global recession and it is all connected and it just so happens that you know we pretty much all use the same bartering system so we have a very good connectivity with the internet. Uh, we've got a bartering system that seems to be somewhat universal. Um, there, there is, there's is a lot of difference. The one thing that is the same though, and the reason I say that the great depression is probably a good comparison is, is not only was the great depression countrywide in terms of the masses, the other, you know, the, the other recessions were a little bit more pocket oriented and this, this industry was affected more than this industry and everything along those lines. Uh, the Great Depression like this one, it's, it's pretty much universal. You know, I mean, yep. outside of a very select few industries, um, you know, even like you take oil and gas, you know, I mean, there's some companies are doing really well because we're still pumping, but most are not. Healthcare, same thing. A lot of them are doing really well, but, you know, some are not. Um, is that... The, the thing that I think is there's a paradigm shift of a technology disruptor that is going to carry us through much like the depression did. And the depression, you had not only the advent of communication, whether it be radio and television, but you also had more of automobiles and kind of that, that, that motor engine that really carried us through as well. Um, and I see that the internet is going to be like that. And I also see that the universal, uh, bartering system is going to be very similar to that too. Uh, is because really it is, it, you know, we, like you and I were talking earlier. I mean, just the fact that, you know, restaurants take restaurants, the, the, just that industry may never be the same, may never be the same. And, yeah, and that, that's such a great point. You know, when you make the great depression comparison, one of the things that happened afterwards is, is folks saved more they were less inclined to spend less inclined to make the big ticket purchases less inclined to take on credit and, and pile up debt and i think that's something that we'll see here after this situation plays out is folks are going to be a lot a lot more fiscally conservative they're going to save more they're going to spend less until they know for certain we're on sure footing and that really did happen in the united states until post World War II, when you had the, the baby boomers and the GIs getting back, and you know they started building houses and going back to school, and then we really had an economic explosion uh, under Eisenhower and into the '60s that you know the economy really took off after that. But it wasn't; it was really post World War II until our economy really took off again. So I, I think that thinking is spot on, and everything I've read out there from Bloomberg to cnbc to fox business you're you're hearing a lot of stuff like that that this is i, I think the term you use that's that's very apropos it's a pair it, there will be a paradigm shift no question about it and I mean, you just think about it folks going 
you know, to restaurants and bars after this. Now, some are going to want to run to whether it's Chubb's Pub or wherever in Fargo and have a beer, but folks going out to the, you know, whether it's the Mezzalunas of the world or McKenzie River or whatever, they'll probably be less inclined to do that because they, we won't know when we'll be out of this. And if we are in a recession, people are going to be less inclined to spend money. So what happens to those workers? Well, what happens to the workers at the factories and plants and the, the whole trickle down effect, you know, we'll see how it shakes out, but we've all seen unemployment numbers and the Department of Labor's jobs report comes out today. So when you, when you talk about paradigm shift, you know, the Great Depression is probably the closest thing to compare it to. And, and obviously we don't want to see bread lines or anything like we did there. But when you talk about, I know a lot of listeners and a lot of folks in the upper Midwest tend to like government staying out of their business. The government, especially the federal government and even the state governments are going to have a more likely, likely to have a more expansive role in stuff like that than they've had at any other time going back to when you know government started kind of rolling back on the the welfare state and and regulations in the 80s so the the term paradigm shift is absolutely spot on i mean i'm already seeing seeing things like where you need a vaccine card to travel and people only get a certain amount of travel credits a year and they can sell them on the open market i mean because right now everything's on the table, everything's on the table, and 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 people are arguing and trying to logically come up with reasons to take it off the table. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, Josh, real quick, is um, the paradigm shift is with the education system. Is when the education system during that Great Depression it changed during that time a little bit, not much, but it changed a little bit, primarily because there was an in-migration of rural going into cities. So you, you still had the agrarian nine-month education system in place. However, there was a lot more urban, and, and that changed the dynamic of education as well, okay? And that is now happening with uh, the Internet and with uh, distance learning, they call it. So what you're seeing now is you're going to see some distance learning change the paradigm of how we operate as a society, because if your kids are not going to school every day, well, that's going to change how people are going to be be at home. So that's another reason I bring up the Great Depression, too, is that we had that kind of that um, transition from agriculture to more urbanization during that period of time, which shifted a little bit of the education. Now, keep in mind, the education system if Rip Van Winkle woke up from his 100-year slumber, the education system would be about the only thing that he would recognize. So it is due for a little bit of a of a change, Josh. Yeah, and what's my you know it's interesting you bring that up. My wife and I were having this same conversation last night with parents and and kids being at home doing the learning through GoToMeeting or Skype or whatever video conferencing platform they're using. How likely are we to see that in the near future going forward? And not just education, but working from home where employers might be more willing to let employees work from home. And then, you you know, you cut down on the big uh, expenses as far as uh, the building and space you need for that. So do we see that? That's a really good question. 
when you take a look at the expense and education, I'm a big proponent of, of education at, at all levels. I think it's one of the things that the United States does really better than anybody in the world is giving our, our citizens access to, to really good education and giving them an opportunity, whether you're a farm kid from Maddock, North Dakota, or a country club kid from Minneapolis, you know, if you work hard and, and, and show merit, you can get a, a high level education in this country. But our schools and the education system would be more inclined to let kids do the learning where they stay at home. So it's kind of homeschooling, but on, on a public level where you're doing the video conferencing, then you don't need as much space. So you, you think about it and, and not to get, you know, too futuristic on us, but I think it's a really fascinating discussion. You look at the, the classroom crunch and space issues that have come up in Western North Dakota districts with the influx of people and having to do classes like they did in Watford city for a while and trailers and the different votes that have come up like in, in Williston for, for expanding the school or, or doing some building. Is this an option now where kids are going to learn at home online doing the video conferencing with their teachers? And if, if that happens, you know, schools have been providing social services and lunches and, and things like that for kids who, you know, come from homes where they need it, uh, you know, beyond anything the kids have any control in. But I, I think one of the areas that will be impacted will be education. And the schools now, most of them staying close through year end, if this works where kids are learning and they're learning through online and tech platforms, is, is that a new option for some of these districts in, in rural North Dakota where schools are closing. I mean, think about that, Jason. You see all these school consolidations and closures and trying to get good teachers in areas of not just rural North Dakota, but rural America. You know, I know Governor Burgum's been big into to pushing broadband access for, for rural North Dakota, which I think is critically important. Is that a new option there where you might not have a school in, you know, Maddock or Leeds or, or McCluskey or, or wherever? Now you have kids that can, you know, whether it's getting a laptop or tablet from the state and they can log on wireless and watch instruction, whether the teachers in Bismarck or Minot. Now I understand I'm friends with a lot of teachers. I think there's a huge value to having kids in a classroom from, from learning and from socialization and everything like that. But is that something that's on the table now going forward? So, you know, kind of tying it all together when you talk about the paradigm shift, that this is going to impact all areas of our lives, not just the economy, but, but education and even healthcare. And we've seen that in rural North Dakota, the telemedicine things. And I know Maddox is at telemedicine for probably 15 to 20 years now with the business and tech center we have there. But one of the stories that's real big during the COVID-19 crisis is rural hospitals closing and the lack of services and the ability for folks to do telemedicine and getting healthcare like that. And I know with the COVID-19, they need to be coming into the big hospitals, but the, the technology now, fortunately, thank God, Jason, our country has the ability, unlike a lot of other countries, where we can do education and kids can go to school online. And our economy, some of the you know third world, uh, third world countries and, and oil and gas producers and developers that are really, really taking it in the shorts right now, their, techno their technology and their use of it isn't as widespread and comprehensive as ours. So if there's one thing right now that saved, you know, this situation, I mean, hell, we could we could be in a Great Depression right now like our great-grandparents and grandparents were back in the late 20s and 1930s, but for technology. That's that's the one area that's probably kept our heads above water. And I know there's 
you know, they're talking 13, 15% unemployment, and, and the numbers are, are really jaw dropping. But can you imagine how bad it would be without technology right now? I did want to mention to you, too, the one thing about the education side is, you know, a lot of people are talking about the remote distancing and, and, and the utilization of the technology. But the one thing I've noticed is I think it's really um, illustrated and really shined a light how those K through six kids need the social interaction. You know, you start getting into junior high and you start getting into high school and even the colleges. I, I get where you can become a little more independent and you can, you know, almost get to a syllabus type thing. But it, there's such an importance during that, you know, uh, during that youth and, and adolescence to have the kids be socially interactive. Um, I hope that's not lost because I, I think it's pretty easy to, um, you know, take a look at the technology. Do you know what I mean by that, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. And I think an example that comes to mind, I think about my, my 10 year old nephew who plays youth baseball. And I, I think about myself and, and my brother and our buddies growing up in Maddox playing football and, and basketball and baseball and track. One of the, the first places that the youth of our country really learned how to, to work and behave in a team environment is, is growing up playing sports, you know, playing the tee balls, playing basketball and, and interacting with other kids. Right. So I hope that that isn't lost. And it's, it's a real tough time to be a parent right now. I mean, I, I know you're a parent, I'm a parent and, you know, we worry about our kids and, you know, we want our kids to be able to go outside, to go to the playground and play. And I, I feel terrible for my niece and nephews who are cooped up inside right now. You know, my, my son's six months old, so he doesn't have a real solid understanding of what's going on because he's six months old. But kids that are in elementary school and all of a sudden they're in home for, for who, how long they can't go play with their friends or buddies. And, and what are we going to lose with that? So I think that'll be one of the stories from a, a, a mental health side to pay close attention to ensure that our, our kids are doing our, not just kids, you know, all of us are doing all right. I know, you know, one of the things I've done with my buddies through one of the video chat platforms, we've had virtual happy hours where it was Monday or Tuesday this week from like four to five thirty. There was four of us on a video conference. So we knocked back a couple cold ones. And last Friday I did the same thing with the uh, four or five other buddies just sat upstairs and, and had a couple Sam Adams while, while talking to them. And even as grownups, you know, one of the things Governor Governor Cuomo had mentioned that I, that I caught in the background, I think, last week is, you know, as human beings, we're, we're wired to be part of the community. We're wired to need that social interaction with other people. And we've been wired like that for, you know, since the beginning of man, going, going back to Neanderthals and cavemen and everything like that, sitting around a fire. I mean, just think about, even now, how sitting around a fire brings people together, and when you lose that or cut it off, when all of us have to stay at home, I mean, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. So I think something, and not to get too far afield, but something I would tell your listeners, and I've told the listeners on the Buys and Illustrated podcast, I mean, things just interacting with other people, getting on a video conference, whether it's, you know, having your kids talk to their buddies or their grandparents or, or even for us adults having a, a something like a virtual happy hour. I mean, from, from a mental health perspective, I, I know for me sitting at home working all day, that's been something that's really, really helped me out. And, and I was surprised, in fact, how much it has helped me out with, you know, my wife being a, a, in the healthcare field and working at the cancer center here in Fargo. She has to go to work and I'm sitting working from home. 
So just talking with other people is something that's really, really important, whether you're an adult or whether you're in fifth or sixth grade trying to, you know, figure out how to adjust and hang out with your buddies. Well, that's the thing, man. There's, there's still a lot to be happy about out there. There's still a lot. There's more ways to communicate with people. There's, you know, different ways to utilize technology to your advantage in today's day and age. And in the world of business, you know, I try to tell people that it's, it is difficult right now. I get that. But at the end of the day, there's still the same amount of, no, there's more money out there than ever before. So it's just, you know, less people have it. So you got to figure out how to build a better mousetrap, how to have, you know, a better steak sandwich and, and that type of thing. And there, there, there is still opportunity out there. Just it, right now, the opportunity is very small and the opportunity is very niche. And you just got to find what that is. Um, your business, though, is, is one of those that's going to keep going. So t- talk to us about uh, how you make some money, how you are, you know, uh, keeping your name out there during this time so people can uh, get in touch with you if they need some work done during um, during this time of, uh, I call it a great time to get some due diligence done. I mean, <laughs> you yeah. can't find a better time to get due diligence than now. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, you've got to, to work, even in our line of business where work's coming in, you got to be out there pounding the pavement, you got to be talking to your clients and, and letting them know what kind of services that you have and Contract law is a big one right now, and even something not not to sound um, too dark or macabre, but uh, estate planning is a situation where we've been maybe a little surprised as attorneys how many folks want to get health care directives in place or to update wills or do estate planning. And even for, for things, you know, the, the federal legislation that's come out, we've advised a lot of our um, business clients that are employers about that and, and how they can take advantage of the federal legislation and, and there's tax issues that come up and how does that impact the filing that, that you're doing, whether it's an individual or a business. So we we're offering a full range of services. Like we always have, we're, we're working remotely, which it, you know, is, is challenging, but with the cell phones and laptops, you know, I'm still getting my hours in and able to connect with my clients, but we've got, I right, tell your listeners, check out the Vogel law firm, just Google us, Vogellaw.com. And they can look at our website. We've got a lot. If you click on the blogs tab at the top of the page, we got a lot of articles that we've been putting out in the last couple of weeks talking about what folks should be looking at for, for services. So they're, they're welcome to do that. And they can always give us a call. We've got um, our staff, fortunately, throughout all this, we've been able to keep the vast majority of our staff on, keep them busy, keep them working to make sure they're getting a paycheck. So if your listeners call 701 701- Two three seven six nine three eight. It's two three seven six nine three eight. They can talk to uh, one of our staffers and get routed to where they need to go, and we'd be happy to, to help them tackle whatever legal issue that they're facing. 